This morning we're continuing to look at Paul's letter to the Romans, the sixth chapter, the second half of the verse. And you understand that these scriptures were written a long time ago. And so when you try to take the metaphors, the language, the symbolism used in that day and translate it to modern times, there's always going to be some interesting bridges that have to be crossed. It's never more true than in this particular passage. Paul says at the very beginning, uh, I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. When he talks about human limitations, he's saying 2,000 years ago, this metaphor is not perfect. Okay, he's already admitting that on the, on the way in. So we shouldn't assume it's a perfect metaphor because he's telling us it's not. He's sort of saying, I, I could talk more plainly, but I'll just grab something from everyday life because we're limited in our understanding. Okay, so we know that going in. Um, and this passage becomes even more difficult for, under, for us to understand at some level because of our current national dialogue. Uh, if ever there was a time to be very careful on social media, this is the time. It is so easy to get sucked in to comments on Facebook. I fought this battle myself this morning. One of my friends, a pastor, posted something on Facebook that was theologically true and completely misapplied. And the urge in me to quickly respond and say, that's a good idea, but you are applying it in such an incorrect way that it negates the truth of the Bible. But I stepped away and said, no, I'm not going to respond because I don't want to get embroiled in that. And I can call him on the phone, right? And we can talk if I feel needing to do that later in the day. It's important to be careful on social media these days. If ever there was a time to read carefully and to humbly assume you know less than you think you know, today is the time. And especially when it comes to the area of race relationships. But the passage we're going to talk about today essentially says this. You used to be slaves to sin. Something has changed. You're no longer slaves to sin. You are now slaves to God. That's the quick summary of what this says. And we'll work to unpack that. This is Romans 6, starting in the 15th verse. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that, though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? 
Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This all feels a little funny when written the way Paul writes it, but we just have to dig down and understand what he's meaning here. He's saying simply this. We offered ourselves to God when we became his children. And in that offering, we admitted some things. We agreed with some things. And sometimes we forget all that we agreed to when we stepped into the kingdom. We admitted, first of all, that we didn't know the best course of action for our lives. We admitted that God knows more than we know and that it makes sense to listen to him. We admitted that his pattern of teaching was healthy and wholesome and it was worthwhile to pursue. All these things were new to us at that time and we agreed to them when we invited Christ into our lives. That's, that's why when we talk about repentance, we talk about a turning, a change of direction. We were walking in one way, but by grace, we were offered a new way of walking and we turned from our old way to a new direction. So these things are part of the old way. We turned, repented of the old way, and now we're walking in a new direction with new assumptions and a new foundation. But we have an American problem. Our battle cry is freedom. We are rugged individualists. We are fiercely independent. And we don't permit ourselves to be holden to or answerable to anyone ever. And that spells big trouble. Because Paul is saying very clearly here that entry into God's family, entry into God's family means now obeying God. That's what it means. That's what we agreed to. Repentance is turning from this way, walking in a new way in obedience to the Holy Spirit and to God. It means agreeing that his ways are best and then actively obeying when he speaks. All of the time. Verse 17 says, But thanks be to God that, though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have willingly chosen a new path. This is one of the ways where the metaphor of Paul breaks itself down. Slavery wasn't ever a choice, right? We don't understand choice and slavery in the same sentence at all. But when Paul makes his presentation, the understanding is God really has given us a free choice. The consequences are inescapable, whichever choice we make. However, we do have a choice of whether we're going to be mastered by sin or follow the master. We have a choice. 
So that's an area where the, the metaphor doesn't exactly hold. But we should understand that if we make the free choice to step into his kingdom, to join his family, we are indebted to God. Because this choice wasn't a choice that we deserved or earned. It was an option that was made available to us by grace. And so we have the choice to make, but then we're asked to be consistent with our choices. So what Paul's saying is, having made this choice, keep your promise. Keep your promise. This is a different kind of slavery than the world has historically known. This is chosen allegiance. We're given a choice. But Paul's saying very clearly in Romans 6, there are not unlimited options. This isn't Burger King where you get to have it your way. Or is that McDonald's? I don't know. There's two ways. Part of the American dream is trying to understand that we can have it exactly the way we want it. And that maybe there are unlimited options in between. And we can just sort of pick our own pathway and have a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And, and we create our own gospel. Paul saying there isn't any other gospel. There is either the way that leads to death and there is the way that leads to life. And if you will walk the way that leads to life, then it will require obeying. There's a good reason to choose the path that leads into the kingdom of God. Paul articulates it in the 23rd verse, which is every child's memory verse once they get to third grade. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our previous way of life was leading us to death. Our new commitment and direction is leading us to life and holiness, transformation of character, and increasing meaning. Verse 21 said, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap? Those things resulted in death. But now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. And the benefit is that it leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. So having considered those things, these are the simple questions that remain. Do you understand that when you became Christian, you gave up autonomous control of your life? Did you understand that that was part of the bargain? That you would have a new master, and the master was God? Did you understand when you became Christian that you adopted a new agenda? Did you understand, do you understand, that God has a claim on your life? That this gracious alternative that he has offered to you means when you accept it, you become indebted to him and that he now has a claim for you. 
Paul's reminding us in this passage that this is a good thing because his claim on you, his transforming grace expressed in your life is the very thing that brings new life and holiness and wholesomeness. And so it's a good thing that he has a claim on his life. It's only a bad thing if you're an American who assumes you shouldn't be beholden to anybody. And if you can't live comfortably under the claims of God, that puts us in a difficult position. The question is this. If you understand all of this, how are you doing at it? How are you doing at obeying? How are you doing at implementing his royal law of love? How are you doing at embracing his agenda of loving the world and all of its residents to him? Do you really count yourselves as his servants? If we're going to live a life that's pleasing to God, do we really understand the nature of that life? To the extent that we are teaching our children the nature of that life, to the extent that they can see our obedient relationship with God modeled in our lives so that they can understand what a relationship with Jesus Christ looks like in life. Are we teaching our children the nature of this life? I think the opposite question is also revealing. In what ways do you refuse to live as a servant of Christ? Are the things that you've put out of bounds, things you said, well, Lord, you can have this, but not this thing, or, or, or it's my right to do this, or are there things that you've placed out of bounds that are not subject to the lordship of Jesus Christ? I read this poem this morning, and it's, uh, it's a piece of this process, I think. This is Michael Coist prayer he's written. I have fallen, Lord, once more. I can't go on. I'll never succeed. I am ashamed. I don't dare look at you. And yet I struggled, Lord, for I knew you were right near me, bending over me, watching. But temptation blew like a hurricane. And instead of looking at you, I turned my head away. I stepped aside while you stood silent sorrowful, like the spurned fiancé who sees his loved one carried away by the enemy. When the wind died down as suddenly as it had arisen, when the lightning ceased after proudly streaking the darkness, all of a sudden I found myself alone, ashamed, disgusted, with sin in my hands. This sin that I selected, the way a customer makes his purchase, this sin that I have paid for and cannot return, for the storekeeper is no longer there. This tasteless sin, this odorless sin, this sin that sickens me, that I have wanted but want no more, that I have imagined, sought, played with, fondled for a long time, that I have finally embraced while turning coldly away from you, my arms outstretched, my eyes and heart 
irresistibly drawn. This sin that I have grasped and consumed with gluttony, it's mine now, but it possesses me as the spider web holds captive the gnat. It is mine. It sticks to me. It flows in my veins. It fills my heart. It has slipped in everywhere as darkness slips into the forest at dusk and fills all the patches of light. I can't get rid of it. I run from it the way one tries to lose a stray dog, but it catches up with me and bounds joyfully against my legs. Everyone must notice it. I'm so ashamed that I feel like crawling to avoid being seen. I'm ashamed of being seen by my friends. I'm ashamed of being seen by you, Lord. For you loved me, and I forgot you. I forgot you because I was thinking of myself, and one can't think of several persons at once. One must choose, and I chose. And your voice, and your look, and your love hurt me. They weigh me down. They weigh me down more than my sin. Lord, don't look at me like that, for I am naked, I am dirty, I am down, shattered, with no strength left. I dare make no more promises. I can only lie bowed before you. Come, son, look up. Isn't it mainly your vanity that is wounded? If you loved me, you would grieve, but you would trust. Do you think that there's a limit to God's love? Do you think that for a moment I stopped loving you? But you still rely on yourself, son. You must rely only on me. Ask my pardon and get up quickly. You see, it's not falling that is the worst, but staying on the ground. Paul is trying to make crystal clear is this. There are no half measures when it comes to sin. There's no accommodating sin. There is only rejecting it and understanding that all sin is odious to God. And it is our bounden duty it is our responsibility to choose to walk in newness of life and to not pretend that there is any middle ground where we can tolerate some measure of sin or, or some measure of disobedience or some. It's either this way or that way. Paul isn't saying that we'll do this perfectly, but he is saying it's either this or this. And any amount of rationalizing that says any of this is okay, that is demonic. That is anti-Christ. Because we are children of God. And our privileges are higher than that. And the grace afforded us is more effective than that. So if we mistake, if we sin, if we err, we admit that it is wrong and we confess and we turn and we pray, we get back up again and say, Father, help me 
to walk in your ways. Teach me your ways. That I can be a child that you're proud of. How are we doing at obeying? Let's pray. Gracious Jesus, we are grateful that you have made your grace available to us. That you have invited us into your kingdom. That you have given us your Holy Spirit so that we can clearly know the difference between right and wrong. So that we can clearly know the difference between good, better, and best. And so that we can clearly understand what our next steps ought to be. We thank you for your grace to enable us to resist temptation and to live lives that are pleasing to you. And so we ask for your help, Lord. Help us to obey. Help us to sense the first approach of sin and reject it. Help us, Lord, to live always to your glory. Lord, if there is some wicked or offensive way in us today, we ask that you would search us, that you would point that out, that you would renew us, that you would give us the grace to live as your children so that we might be salt and light in this world. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.